We're going to be looking at John 17, and I was tempted to um, read the whole chapter. Uh, I think I will just read verses 14 through 23 that are printed here in your bulletin. Uh, it's, it's, on, it's on page 9 of your worship guides. But I do encourage you to open your Bibles to John 17 because I will be, and keep your Bibles open because I will be uh, referencing verses throughout the chapter as we look at these, these verses. So please read with me John chapter 17 verses 14 through 23. I have given them your word and the word And the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And... For their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you are one, Father. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Please join me in prayer as we pray for God's blessing on his word. Lord, I pray that your word would be heard, your truth would be heard and received here today. It would comfort us where we need to be comforted and confront us where we need to be confronted. In your name we pray. Amen. So there are some phrases that have become so commonplace in the Christian community that we can begin to think that they're actually quotes from the Bible. A couple of examples of this could be, money is the root of all evil. God won't give you more than you can handle. Cleanliness is next to godliness. If you saw my car or my office, you might know that I'm glad that that's not a quote from the Bible. Um, And and some of these are more in line with scripture than, than others. But another that this chapter really brings to mind is that we, as Christians, should be in the world, but not of the world. In the world, not of it. This is not what it says in John 22, verse 3. You can search the Bible all day and you won't find this exact phrase. Yet in John 17, Jesus does say that his disciples... And all who would come to be his disciples are not of the world. And he also says that they are in the world. And and even though both of these things are true, 
I think this phrase that we are to be in the world but not of it is commonly misunderstood and sometimes even misused. And though there is much more that can be said about what is taking place in this chapter of John 17, I couldn't get this phrase out of my head. And and when I think about this chapter, it, it really comes to mind over and over. So I want to focus on this idea that really primarily comes from this text, that Christians are called to be in the world, but not of it. But before we get to this idea of being in the world, but not of it, I think it's important to be reminded of the context of John 17. So we look at John 17, we start in verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. The words that he had spoken is referring to all that he had said in chapters 14 through 16. What we come to know is the upper room discourse, what we've been talking about over the last uh, month or so. It's, it's Jesus preparing the disciples for, for what is about to come. That, that he's preparing them for, for his arrest and his crucifixion. It's his last words to the disciples in preparation. But then in John 17, which is presumably right after he finishes this discourse, uh, he prays to God. He turns his attention to God and lifts up a prayer to him. And unlike most of the other prayers that Jesus prays, he prays this in the presence of the disciples. So they get to eavesdrop on the converse, his conversation with God. And we get to eavesdrop because we, they record what he prays here. So as we look at this prayer, one thing that's really important to note is first that it is a prayer to God. But also that Jesus is not praying for individuals. He's praying for a community. The, the community that includes not only his disciples, but all who would come to believe in him through their teaching. In other words, he's praying for the church. The reason I think this is important is because when we think of the idea of in the world but not of it, most of the time we're thinking in terms of the individual. Well, what Jesus says here, it, it certainly applies to the individual, and we need to apply it to us as individuals. I want to make sure we're putting it in a proper context. This is a prayer for a community, for the church. But in order to understand this phrase, I also think that we need to understand what John means when he uses the word the world. What does he mean when he says the world? This word is used 185 times in the New Testament. 78 of those are in John's gospel. 18 of those are in this chapter alone. John's gospel is a, is, is a gospel that is concerned about the world. But yet John doesn't always mean the same thing. So context is key to understanding what it means when he says the world. Uh, even within this chapter, he uses the, world, the word in different ways. In verses 5 
and in 24, let's look at verse 5. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Here, the world is meant, it means the ordered cosmos, the world as God has created it. Yet in verse 14, as we read verse 14, he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He seems to use it in a different way. He's, he's using it to mean the system which is at enmity with God, the world that is in the darkness and hates the light. The world is hostile to those who follow after Jesus. If we look back to John 3, 19 through 20, John explains why the world is hostile. He says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does, does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. This is a hostile world that is in darkness and hates the light. That is what we are called to be in, but not of. And the disciples, they were, they were about to face the hostility of the world in a, in a very real and tangible way. The world hated Jesus so much that they crucified him on a cross. And the disciples scattered, and Peter denied Jesus because they feared that they would be killed. The hostility that they faced was tangible and very real. And for many Christians throughout the ages, even today, who, who face persecution, it has been just as real. Yet for us, here in the Bible Belt, sometimes it's more subtle, isn't it? But it is still very real. This makes me think of um, the greatest basketball game that has ever been played by one man. And will on, on March 2nd, 1962, the Philadelphia Warriors beat the New York Knicks 169 to 147. But in that game, Wilt Chamberlain scored 100 points. That's a lot of points. <laughs> over half of the points, well over half the points were scored by Wilt, Ch Wilt Chamberlain. But Wilt Chamberlain was 7'1 and 275 pounds. And if he was going to the rim, the, what the defense knew to do, they had to foul him because he was going to make the basket if they didn't. But the reason that they would foul him is because he shot 40% from the free throw line. Except in this great game, which he scored 100 points. In this game and this game alone, he shot 87% from the free throw line. He made 28 out of 32 shots. But what was different? In that game, he shot all of his free throws underhand, like a granny shot. 
And it worked. It clearly worked. He went from 40% from the line to 87% from the line. Yet, he never did it again. Why? Why would he, he could have become the single greatest basketball player who's ever played the game. He was already great, but we wouldn't be having conversations about Michael Jordan and LeBron if he would just have done this because he would have scored this many points on, on a more regular occasion. But he wouldn't do it because he thought it was silly. It made him look silly. And nobody else did it. And instead of, uh, instead of standing out in such a great way, he decided to conform to the rest of the league. And he shot 40% from then on. See, I think too often, we often equate hostility of the world just with persecution. But it's more than that. It's also peer pressure. Shooting underhand was looked down upon, even though it clearly worked. He didn't do it. I think this is why Jesus prays that God would protect us from the evil one in verse 15. Because the evil one is crafty and subtle. When we are faced with the hostility of the world, oftentimes we face one of two temptations. Either we are tempted to conform to the world like Wilt Chamberlain did, or we are faced to, we are tempted to escape from the world and not be in the world. So let's look at, uh, first let's look at how we are called not to conform to the world. A more positive way to say this might be that we are called, we are called to be set apart from the world. This prayer in John 17 is often called the high priestly prayer. Jesus, who is our great high priest, is praying a prayer of intercession for, on behalf of his people. Yet, Leslie Newbigin calls this prayer the prayer of consecration. Now, consecration is not a word that we use very often, but Webster's dictionary defines it as to make or declare something as sacred. Something that is sacred is set apart. It's different from the rest. It's sanctified. <clears throat> In verse 19, uh, let's, as we read verse 19, Jesus says, And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Now, sanctified is a word that we're more familiar with, but it's a synonym of consecrate here. And, and in this verse, it's actually the same Greek word that is translated first as consecrate and then as sanctified. Jesus is setting himself apart, consecrating himself, so that we may be set apart and sanctified. We are set apart from the world in verse 16, he says, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We have been called out of the world as those who have been given to Jesus, as we see in verse 2. But let us look at how, are, how is it that we are to be set apart from the world? 
think it's in three ways. We see it in three ways in, in this chapter. In truth, in keeping God's word, and in our unity. First, Jesus calls us to be set apart in truth. Jesus does not simply pray that God would sanctify us. He prays that God would sanctify us in the truth. The, the thing that sets us apart from the world more than anything else is that the truth is the truth and the world, we have the truth and the world does not. We know the truth and the world does not. In verse 8, he says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know the truth, that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. We know the truth. And that's what sets us apart. In verse 14, he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We are not of the world because we have been given the word, the truth. <clears throat> it's precisely because we've received this word that Jesus says that we are no longer of the world. Then in verse 25, he says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. Again, we are called out of the world as those who have received the truth. Newbigin states it this way, to know that Jesus is the apostle of God is to be in the light, to not know that he is, to not know, not to know that is to be in the darkness. That's what separates light from darkness. The truth that Jesus was sent by God. And this is also what, how, how he defines eternal life. Look at verse 3. He says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You're separated from the world and that we know the truth. That is not the only thing that sets us apart. We are also set apart in keeping God's word. In verse 6, he says, I manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, that they and they have kept your word. We are set apart from the world in that we keep God's word. In verse 11, he also prays that we would be kept in his name. But what's interesting in verse 11 here is that Jesus addressed God as Holy Father, whereas before he just said Father. In order to be kept in his holy name, we are to be holy as he is holy. As 1 Peter 1.15 says, But as, you who, as he who called you holy is holy, who, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. We are set free from sin and enabled to keep his word. We don't keep his word perfectly, yet we should still be characterized as people who strive to obey God's word. 
Our obedience to his word sets us apart from the world. But again, this is not just as individuals, it's as a community. As it says in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, that you are not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are called out of darkness into his marvelous light so that we may walk in the light and obey his word by walking in the light. Not only are we set apart from the world um, in the truth and in keeping God's word, we are also set apart from the world in our unity. Three times Jesus prays for the unity of those who would follow after him in this chapter. Our unity with one another is an unbreakable union. He compares it to the unity between himself and the Father. The unity that Jesus prays for here is both a spiritual unity and a visible unity. It is spiritual in that, the only, that it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that anyone is enabled to confess Jesus as Lord. We are bound together through the work of the Spirit. And as we are united to Christ through the work of the Spirit in our confession, we are united to one another in the family of God. Yet our unity is not merely spiritual. It is also to be visible as well. In verse 23, he says, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. This unity is to put, be put on display before the watching world. It is to be a visible display of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Leslie Newbigin writes of this unity. He says, moreover, this unity will enable the world to know the love of God, not just as an idea or a doctrine, but as a palpable reality experienced in the supernatural love which holds believers together in spite of all their human diversities. So maybe as I was thinking about this, I, I'm kind of stuck on basketball a little bit. But uh, when, when I was living in Raleigh, I would uh, go and early in the morning go to a local seminary and play basketball with a bunch of people who were studying to be pastors and, uh, and uh, missionaries. And, and I would go and play basketball with them. And there was, there was one particular morning that, well, let me, let me just say, uh, playing Basketball with a bunch of pastors and possibly youth pastors or missionaries, probably the worst idea that you've ever had if you ever do that. They are not very good at basketball, and I say this about myself, uh, and all they really know how to do is foul. Um, that's, 
That's my experience of how I play basketball. Um, but because of that, and because ba- we weren't very good, we, we fouled a lot, it often kind of got heated. And, and there was one morning that we were playing and, and a, f- a fight nearly broke out. A bunch of pastors playing basketball. They almost get in a fight. And, and it just, as I was thinking about it, it made me think, like, what if I had invited a non-Christian to play that morning? What kind of witness would we have been to the watching world if, if non-Christians saw the way that we were playing basketball and almost getting into a fight? Not very unified. Not, not really keeping God's word. But here's the thing. If the church is going to remain the church, it must be set apart in these ways. If we can form ourselves to look just like the world, we lose our voice in the world. I say that as the church. But yet, as a church can often, the, the church can often, it can be so easy to justify forsaking the things that make us set apart because we think that it would enable us to reach the world when when the reality is it does the opposite. If we forsake those things, we lose our voice. But I don't want to get too caught up in thinking about the church as a whole and neglect how we need to apply this in our daily lives. I want to think about how we as, as members of the body of the church can apply this to our daily lives. Reflect on that. After all, the church will only be set apart if its members are set apart. We are set apart, and the truth means that our confession of Jesus, that we hold, hold tightly to our confession as Jesus, as Lord, I do want to say, if you're here this morning and have yet to make this confession, please, please don't take this to mean that everyone else here is set apart and you are different and therefore you are not welcome. Please do not hear that. We are so glad that you are here. You are welcome. And my prayer is that you will join us in being set apart by the truth. But I don't think that being set apart in the truth only means and only requires that we must confess Jesus as Lord. We must also be a people who long to know more of God's truth. Sorry, my sermon just cut out on me. I'll be back in a moment. must people who long to know more of God's truth. Uh, we are set, not only set apart in the truth, uh, so know more of God's truth through studying God's word, through continually reading and getting to know what, what the truth really is, studying God's word, coming and hearing God's word preached and and just investing our lives in knowing more about this truth. We also set apart in keeping God's word 
through our continual pursuit of obedience. Sanctification is an ongoing process in our lives. It's putting sin to death, living unto righteousness. We must continually, in every moment, be in pursuit of holiness in our lives so that we can be characterized as a people who love what God loves and want to be more like Jesus. We're also set apart in our unity through our love for one another. You may be thinking, well, the church as a whole doesn't do a great job at unity. Yes, I agree this is an area of the church uh, as a whole struggles with, but I want to think about how you as an individual can participate in the unity of the church. How can we in this local embodiment of the of the church be unified with one another? It's through a pursuit of deep community here within this body. We can care for one another's needs. We can take a meal to somebody who is sick or maybe just had a baby. We, we can offer babysitting to somebody, to young parents to give them a break. I'm throwing that one in intentionally. Uh, we, can, we can serve together. Uh, there are so many opportunities to serve in this community, like the thing uh, this coming Friday where we can serve meals to people for Thanksgiving. We can build one another, encourage one an, uh, build one another up, encourage each other, speaking and encouraging words to one another. We confess to one another, holding each other accountable, forgive one another, uh, not holding a grudge, love one another, take time to get to know the people that you are in this community with. Invite people over for dinner, stop and talk to them when you bump into them at the store. Get involved in the life of the body. And I will plug our small groups at this point. This is a wonderful opportunity for you to get involved in the body is through small groups. If you are interested in that, please let me know and I will help you find a way to get in or you can talk to an elder um, or to Paul. But we're not only called to be set apart from the world we're also, we must also be called to be sent into the world, or to be in the world. Verse 15, Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus is not asking that we be removed from the world. He's about to leave the world, yet his disciples are to stay in the world. But this isn't just because Jesus, it's Jesus' time to die and not time for the disciples. They're, and they have to continue to live on the earth. In verse 18, he says, you, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We are not just called to just be in the world because this is where we live. We are called to be sent into the world. We are sent in order to carry on his mission. Jesus has manifested God's name to us, and as we see in verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. He's manifested his name to us, and we have come to know him in the truth. And now it is through those who have been sent, not as individuals, 
but as a united community of God's people, the church, that Jesus prays in verse 21, the world may believe that you, God, have sent me. Therefore, you are to be in the world as those who have been sent to carry on the mission of Jesus, which Luke 19 tells us the mission of Jesus, and this isn't the full mission, but it's a big part of the mission. He was, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We have been given the light of Jesus not to hide it. As Jesus says in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. It is in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Yet so often we act like in order to not be conformed to the world, it's our task to protect the light from the darkness. Yet right before this prayer, Jesus says in chapter 16, the last verse of chapter 16, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. As those who have the light of Jesus, we do not need to fear the darkness because Jesus is victorious over it. We don't need to protect the light. Jesus does that. We just need to share it with others. Now, there are different reasons why people who are sent don't go. I think of Moses when he was sent. He said he, he was afraid that he didn't have the right words. And, and Jonah, when he was sent, he didn't feel like the people were worthy of the truth. And, and the disciples were sent, but they were hiding in an upper room because they feared for their lives. And one, another example from common life is uh, there was a, na- man, a mailman named William Morse who was sent to deliver mail, but he, instead of delivering the mail, he, he stashed at least 44,900 pieces of mail in his dead mother's home and in a storage unit because he wanted to speed up his route because he was lazy. Sometimes that's why we don't go and as people who are sent. We're lazy. But God has sent the church into the world to carry the light of Jesus into the darkness. Is the light of Jesus getting to its destination? Is it being stashed away? Possibly out of laziness or some of these other reasons. A lot of times out of fear. In what ways are we taking the light of Jesus to the world. Again, this is a prayer for the church as a whole, but I want to think in terms of what you do in your everyday lives to participate in the church's call to be sent into the world. I think that it means that we have to pursue relationships with more than just our Christian brothers and sisters. Jerem Bars, in reference to this, says, If we do not know non-Christians in any personal depth, it is evident that the only evangelism that can take place is technique-based raids from behind the wall of the church to an enemy-occupied territory of the world. I think this looks like 
getting to know our neighbors, inviting them over to our homes, building relationships with coworkers who don't know Jesus. I think it can be simple as loving people well who are in public places that we come in contact with on a daily basis, uh, treating waiters and cashiers at the grocery stores and baristas, the people that we come in contact with with kindness and, and getting to know them. Ask them how they're doing. Share a little bit of yourself with them. Invite these people to church. And so often I find that getting to know people is the easy part. But where it gets hard is being willing to speak the truth. This doesn't always have to be from a challenge and asking them to repent and believe. It can be simply being willing to share how God is at work in your life. Maybe sharing what your relationship with God means to you. I think we also see an example of what this looks like from Jeremiah 29. I think that, that's why we read this, this verse, or why Paul read it. That we are to seek the welfare of the city. We, as Zion Church, are to be concerned about the welfare of Columbia, and we are to seek its welfare and to pray for it, to get involved in the community. So, in the world, but not of it. What do you think? Is, is this an accurate way to state what Jesus is saying in John 17? To me, it does seem accurate. However, it's often misunderstood or misused. Some, when they say it, put more emphasis on in the world and focus on influencing culture, pushing back on injustice, infiltrating dark places. These are good things, but they can't be emphasized so much that we forget that we are also called to be not of the world, to be set apart from it. Because if we go and be, if we look just like them, we lose our voice. Others, when they say in the world but not of it, emphasize the but not of it part, and they, they see the hostility of the world and the cunning ways of the evil one, and they want to protect themselves and others from evil things. They fear that the more they engage with the world, the more they will be conformed to it. Again, it is not, it is, it is good to want to not be conformed. However, we can focus so much on this, we can lose sight of the fact that we are sent into the world. We can create our own little Christian communities and have little or no interaction with those and little influence with the world around us. So maybe in the world, but not of it is accurate, but maybe there's a better way to say it. Perhaps it's sent into the world, but set apart from it. It doesn't quite flow off the tongue as easily, but perhaps it does a better job of capturing the intent of John 17. My prayer is that as, you, as we read these verses, that we'll see that we are called, as the community of believers who have the light of Jesus, we are called to remain set apart, but also called to be sent into the world so that we can take the light into the darkness. Please pray with me. Lord, I thank you that you have given us your word, that you have manifested yourself to us so that we know you, we know the truth. I pray that you will help us to be set apart from the world, but Lord, I pray that you will also help us to be sent into the world so that we can take the light into the darkness and 
that we can seek the welfare of our community and of our world, the world around us. In your name we pray. Amen.